0: Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. We're now up to thirty-four countries, listeners from thirty-four countries. I'm very proud that and appreciate everybody's support. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today we welcome and thank you for your service. Uh, is in Captain Shannon Huffman Paulson, uh, author of The Grit Factor. Welcome, Shannon.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's great
0: to be with you. And great to have you and have everybody who is listening today to listen to you. So before we talk about your book, could you just give a little bit about your background? And You come from a long family of uh, people who have served in the military and also your business background as well.
1: Sure. And Mark, thanks again for having me on today and thanks for all of you for showing up and spending your time with us for this hour, whether it's lunch or breakfast or, or dinner. Uh, Yeah, I had the unique opportunity a number of years ago after finishing university at Duke University to be one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter in the United States Army. I served on three continents, leading three different line companies before transitioning through my MBA at the Tuck School at Dartmouth, and then having the opportunity to lead outstanding teams in the corporate world as well, most notably at Microsoft. And since then, I've returned to an early love of storytelling, uh, combined with a love of leadership and the study of leadership. And that's really given me the opportunity to explore more those things that really worked in and out of uniform. The Grip Factor was born from a request from a young lieutenant who was beginning the same process that I had begun, going down to flight school in Fort Rucker, Alabama, who reached out and asked if I would be her mentor. And I realized, wow, I'd love to help. But at the same time, it had been a while since I had served in uniform. And I wondered how I might scale the advice that I offered to her. And if I did that work, which I knew would be a lot of work, then scale the people to whom that advice and those stories were available. So I started to interview leaders in the vanguards of their fields. They happen to be women, they happen to be military, but they span the generations and they span the services. And that has really been the genesis of what became the Grit Factor.
0: I have to say the stories in the book are amazing. And the book is one that you can't put down. Like you want to read it all in one shot and you do a great job of uh, telling the story. And you're such an underachiever. That was like the kind of the disappointment.
1: Uh, (laughs) Well, I will say it, I mean, the biggest, the biggest honor in this entire process has been bringing these stories of these leaders, not just their stories, but their lessons learned and then tactical takeaways that people can implement in their lives immediately, in their work and in their personal lives. So it's been just an incredible honor to shepherd these stories uh, out into the world.
0: It seems to me like the military is a great trainer of people that when you meet people and they've gone through military training, it really makes an enormous difference.
1: It really can. I mean, the military is a, a pretty much a cross-section of reality, right? And the cross-section of the population. So it, you, you find all types. But, but it really is an incredible opportunity to have uh, experiences that you just couldn't have anywhere else at a very young age.
0: You, you mentioned in the book uh, that you did join the military because you wrote that that wasn't really a career aspiration. So what made you decide to get into the military?
1: Well, when I showed up at Duke University, I'd actually grown up in Anchorage, Alaska. So I went across the continent, about as far away as I could go, uh, due to probably a little bit of teenage angst and a little bit of ambition, wanting to get away from home. And uh, and you know, college was definitely a stretch in the United States, as many of you know. It's it's an expensive proposition, and so I was already working two jobs while attending school. And I went to a college fair where I saw all of the ROTC tables out. And for us in this country, that's the Reserve Officer Training Corps, which then as you go through that ROTC program at the end of your your university years, you're also commissioned in the military. And I decided I would try Army ROTC because I could be a liberal arts major, which was definitely where I wanted to focus. Uh, Army was the only place that would let me do that. Air Force and Navy required you to be an engineer. And, uh, and I figured I probably wouldn't like it, but at least I could say I had tried it. And I ended up really connecting with the sense of purpose, with the sense of serving something larger than myself, and with the people that I had the opportunity to serve with.
0: That's the word that everybody um, says, is that they wanted to be part of something larger than themselves. It's always, you know, I, I work with some Navy SEALs, and they say the same thing, that they wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, I think I grew up that way, really, where service was a big part of our, our uh, family culture. And so that was really something that was important to me.
0: And your dad, your father was a JAG attorney, correct?
1: He was. And, and in, in fairness, he was drafted out of law school for Vietnam, but the Army sent him to Alaska instead of Vietnam. But he was very proud of his four years of service. And then he went into private practice as an attorney after that.
0: Could you see Russia outside your house, too, like Sarah Palin?
1: No, no, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> not.
0: <laughs> so, so talk about how do you define grit?
1: You know, I have defined grit and I, I'll start actually with the, the definition, perhaps many of you already know from Angela Duckworth at University of Pennsylvania, which is passion and perseverance towards a very long-term goal. And I like that. She's certainly the, the premier researcher in the space, but I've really thought of grit as a dogged determination in the face of difficult circumstances. I mean, there are sometimes you don't You don't see the horizon. You can't see the horizon. Certainly in 2020, that's been the case for a lot of people, and it's very, very disorienting. And that's really hard to focus on a long-term goal when you can't see the horizon, and you're not sure what the next six months even holds. So that dogged determination is necessary at times, even when you don't feel passionate. I mean, it's great when you have the passion. There's times when you've just got to buckle down and do it as well. But I think the most important thing that I discovered in the process of researching the grit factor, doing the interviews, doing the background, the secondary research as well, is that I don't think of grit as this discrete thing that we take off the shelf when we need it at mile 23 of the marathon, I like to say, you certainly need it there but it's really more of the fabric of our character. It's really something, it's something that we all have access to and we can all build as well. So it's not just for military pilots, we all have it, we all need it, it's absolutely key to success. But it really is something that's much more holistic, I think, than how it's been discussed earlier.
0: Is it something that can be taught or is this within you?
1: It, I think it can be taught, but it has to be practiced uh, by the individual, right? And I, or by the organization as well. So that's something where we can talk about and we probably should even this morning, talk about some of the ways that you do build grit, you do build resilience, but the practice ultimately, just like a musical instrument, just like an athletic endeavor is up to you.
0: Yeah. I, I, again, the book was amazing. Uh, one of the things that you had discussed, you said you, uh, you mentioned fear, you experienced it on a mission in Bosnia. How did the military teach you to deal with fear and how can you apply that to the business world?
1: Yeah, and I don't recall any specific training on fear. It certainly was the result of of experiences that were increasing in difficulties. So I would say that's really the way that they teach it is by that experience, by giving you increasingly difficult challenges that you're expected to surmount. But one of the things that we talked about, and I think this is applicable in the cockpit of the Apache helicopter, just as well as it is in uh, a merger and acquisition or any other kind of challenge that you might be facing is that when you are facing fear, when you confront failure, because all of us fail at times as well, right? When you're confronting those things that seem insurmountable, there's a something that we called an aviation compartmentalization. And, and you literally envision putting whatever this fear is into a box and setting it aside. It doesn't mean that you never deal with it, and it doesn't mean that you don't return to it. You certainly have to do that to be able to manage and to be able to effectively negotiate any kind of a uh, um, an obstacle. But you don't have to necessarily deal with it right now. And so putting that into a box, putting it into a drawer, whatever that visual is, shutting it away and then focusing on the mission and then once you're done with the mission, you can come back and return to the challenge that you need to address uh, external to that. And I think that's something all of us can learn from.
0: Uh, what did you learn from flying a helicopter and how do you apply it to the private sector? Because I actually flew a helicopter once and it's ah! nothing like the movies, like you know where the guy grabs the stick and, <laughs> and yanks it to the right or the left. I mean, you, you have to touch that so gently that it's like yes. moving a hair just slightly. And it, it goes one way or the other and yeah. some I, I, and I learned a lot just from flying a helicopter once about uh, about the, the ability to just slightly do something and doing it just a little bit can move everything a lot. So what was your takeaway and how can you apply that to working in the private sector?
1: Mark, I love that analogy. And I think I could come up with a whole bunch of metaphors. Um, but I actually, I'll let me come to, to your example there. I remember learning how to hover. And learning how to hover the helicopter, flying straight and level is pretty easy, right? You just... You just go and you kind of keep things in the same position. Learning how to hover t- took about 10 hours in the cockpit. And I really thought that I was going to be the one person who didn't get it. I think we all think that when you're first learning how to hover, because you are, you're trying to maneuver and it's really just about the slightest touch, just the slightest amount of of, uh, of resistance on that cyclic, which is that, that thing that comes up from the floor that you're maneuvering while you're hovering as well as the pedals and the collective. But, uh, but I do think that that sustained effort in the face of a really abysmal failure for some period of time uh, is, is a good lesson that it eventually it comes, you know, and eventually that applied effort in that direction results in a positive result. And I remember after that 10 hours, which probably equated to about 10 days or two weeks of training, you find what they call the hover button and suddenly you can hover. And just five minutes previous to that, you'd been swinging the helicopter all over the field. But because you have that sustained attention and focus and training, even though you cannot see where it's leading and even though you cannot see the end result, over that sustained period results in the positive uh, results that you would hope for. So I love that. I actually haven't used that in a presentation before, but that's absolutely the case. You know, the example that I like to give relative to grit, and I, I love I love telling this story just about taking off in the Apache the very first day. I talked about you walk out on the tarmac. I walked out on the tarmac at Fort Rucker, Alabama winter day I have chills going up and down my spine, but it's really about the excitement and the terror, really, of walking up to the most technologically advanced aircraft in the world. It's 58 feet long, you know, it's 18 feet across, 12 feet high, two 1,850 horsepower jet engines. On the wings hangs any combination of the 2.75 inch folding fin aerial rocket and the anti tank Hellfire missile, and we have the 30 millimeter cannon underneath. Three different sight systems that can see in day and night and adverse conditions. We climb in that cockpit. And begin the run-up procedure that I'll know so well that I'll know it by heart. But as anybody in manufacturing or any other sort of uh, operational role knows, you always use the checklist. And then we taxi out towards takeoff. And if I'm with a live audience, and I have the opportunity to keynote, fortunately, to audiences across the world on, on leadership and on grit and related subjects, I ask them, which way do you take off in the Apache? And most people will say up interestingly, which is of course the end goal, right? But I like to say in the Apache, like in any other aircraft, you turn the nose to face the wind. And when you use it the right way, that resistance will help you to rise. And I think that relates to that grit and resilience in that we have to turn towards a challenge. We can never take it from the side. And in turning towards it, when you address it head on in the right way, of course, with the right skills, with the right experience, that really can help you maneuver directly through it. And I think that's a, a a wonderful metaphor that I love to share with people. I can probably go on and on with my aviation metaphors, but that's a great one I think to recall when, when we are facing challenges in our day-to-day.
0: I mean, everything else must be a come down after flying one of those machines.
1: Uh, well, I have an eight and, eight and 11 year old boy right now and I will say those two boys are a pretty wild ride themselves, so.
0: <laughs> I'm Absolutely. So uh, in the book, you you mostly uh, uh, focused on successful women in the military. Why just the women?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I started this process, again, I was working towards how do I offer stories to this young woman leader who's beginning this process that I had gone through before of flying and leading. Um, The reason that I focused on women was twofold. Number one, I, I have found it interesting in the study of leadership and in the application of leadership, that it's not uncommon at all to pick up a book that only focuses on male leaders and it will never get a second comment about the fact that there are only male leaders that are either referenced or studied. So I wanted to break that mold and say, hey, this is a leadership book. It's for everybody. It's for women and men and it happens to focus on incredible women leaders. But the second part of that, so part of that was me just being a little bit snarky, I've got to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really, why not, right? But mm-hmm. the second yeah. part of that, and this is really important actually, is that every single one of these leaders that are interviewed for this story, not only were wildly successful and, and certainly endured failure, certainly endured all of those challenges and hardships, but every single one of them faced what a Stanford law professor calls a double crucible, they face the challenges, the very real and significant and tactile challenges of what the military will throw at you, often in combat, often on deployment for extended periods of time. And they face the resistance to their very, uh, their very leadership, their, their being there at all as a woman. Many of them were first in their fields, or one of the first in their fields. The military still has quite a ways to come, and I think making the military an inviting place for all people to offer their contributions in a meaningful way. So they all faced the double crucible and that requires a kind of grit that is pretty unique. And that is why I wanted to focus on that because if we're talking about grit, yes, the military throws a lot your way, but these leaders also faced that double crucible and it was concurrent in their everyday life, sometimes for three decades.
0: You know, I, I thought it was also smart from a, a business standpoint about writing a book which featured all women, because then you've carved out your own niche. And I'm sure you learned that in, in business school, That that makes a lot of sense. Because <laughs> if you'd mixed in General Patton and others in there, it wouldn't have near the impact that the book had. And I don't think probably it would have been as interesting to me and, sure. I think, and to the audience. And so I, I think that was very smart on your part to go and do it. And Why did uh, almost all of these women had um, faced the imposter syndrome? Like they really had some significant doubts that they had to get over, but they got over them.
1: Well, again, I think it's really. I mean, it's my experience in the military was that that there were some wonderful people that I worked with and I learned from, and I was very very fortunate for that there's also some people that are not that way and and i would even say that that perhaps the majority and so you're really working in an environment where you're where the signals and these now we're not talking about microaggressions and 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 these sorts of of subtle signals are constantly rejecting your presence and i think that's a really challenging thing to feel like you're meant to be there that you have the opportunity to contribute in a way there's almost this requirement to kind of forced your contributions in an uncomfortable way. And I think that's, that's part of it. I also think, and this is a, a really something I could write an entire book on, maybe I will someday, but the importance of story. Because the stories that we tell in a business environment or in a military environment very rarely include women. And I think that means that our psyches aren't totally prepared to understand women in those environments. So one of the things I I recommend to people who are looking at diversity and inclusion specifically as one of their goals is that you have to learn the stories of those leaders who happen to be women and are exceptional, and you have to tell those stories and understand that the way that you tell stories is multifaceted, right? The stories are being told at your company, at your business by the pictures that are on your wall, the pictures that are on your website, who's on your board. The stories that you tell as examples in your board meetings or in your in your committee meetings, those are the stories that really start to, to demonstrate and to signal what is important to your company. So as a leader, if it's really important to you, and it should be because the bottom line is certainly improved by a more diverse workforce, right, and a more diverse leadership as well, That the studies are very clear on that then you've got to go out and seek out and learn those stories and share those stories and ensure that that's part of the culture of the organization that you are building and that you're leading.
0: Yeah, and no question about it. And I think that uh, the country is seeing a greater uptick in that over this past summer where we have to really start taking even a, a stronger look at ourselves. I thought we were all behind that after Obama got elected.
1: And still,
0: we're still fighting through that. But now you have a woman vice president, so maybe we're back to making more progress. Why did you break the book down into three categories, commit, learn, and launch?
1: That's such a good question, and I'm glad you asked it, because it's it's part of the idea of a holistic perspective of grit. And I will say that the way that the book ended up being shaped was really by the stories and the lessons learned that were shared by these incredible cohort of leaders who were so generous with sharing very, very candid experiences from, from, that they had learned and the things that they wished that they had known. And based on that, I really think of grit now, and I, unfortunately I didn't get this into the book, but I think of it and I talk about this in keynotes now as a grit triad, as commit, learn, and launch. That really corresponds and this shows this holistic nature of this, this character trait of grit, right? As corresponding with past, present, and future. The commit is really this work of owning your own story and drilling down to core purpose. And that's the foundation of grit. That's the foundation of resilience. That's where you can return again and again, anytime you're facing challenges, anytime you're negotiating the turbulence or the unknown, like all of us have been for this past year, you return to those things that matter the most. That's individual. That's also organizational. What, are, what is our story? how are we shaping the raw material of our story to move us in a trajectory that allows us to contribute in the way that we're meant to best serve, right? That's the opportunity and the responsibility we have in the commit phase. And then drilling down the core purpose or heart purpose, which I'm happy to spend some more time on as well. The, the learn phase is this deep engagement in the present. And it's where the biggest surprise came to me from these interviews, because this deep engagement in the present, two parts of it is relational, and one part of it is mindset. And that relational piece is about building your team and about being part of another person's team or other people's teams as well to support them. But here's the most interesting part that came out of all of these interviews, and I didn't expect it at all, was as part of the importance of that relational component. All of the senior officers that I talked to talked about the most strategic leadership skill the most important thing you can do, especially as a senior leader, is the skill of active listening. And it's truly an art and it's a science. And then ultimately the mindset and the mindset grounded optimism and also something that is an extension now of the growth mindset that worked from uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford. And then ultimately launch, launch is about moving forward, grounded in the past, engaged deeply in the present, but looking towards the future with authenticity with audacity, that's that willing to stretch yourself, to take a risk, to face fear and failure, and ultimately adaptability. And this last year has certainly put adaptability right in the forefront for all of us.
0: Yeah, without question. Uh, Do you feel men still have a hard time accepting women in leadership uh, positions? And do these men come from a certain background or culture?
1: Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I think the, the quick answer is it depends on the person, right? I think that's absolutely the case. That's always the case for men or women. And I think we all will, will do better when we start to look at people as individuals, uh, for sure. But I do think that there are many places where there is still that resistance to women in leadership. And part of it is that they haven't been exposed to it. Part of it is they probably have either cultural or family norms that uh, that go against that in some way. So I think there's a, there's quite a lot of work still to do in that realm. I, the more male dominated fields are the places where when I go out and do keynotes, when I go out and work with companies and, and and do corporate training programs, the places that really seem to be more challenged are the places where there are fewer women. And that's, I think, an example of less exposure. Uh, sometimes there's less opportunity, which is what results in that, that uh, lower exposure. But there are certainly plenty of opportunities um, I, I know I'm talking to a, a, an orthopedic company, which is concerned that they have very, very few women still in orthopedics in the medical field. Certainly in the technology field is another big area where that's that's a constant focus. Uh, but there are a number of industries, uh, even in finance, so there's still quite a, a paucity of women leaders.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, even in the startup area, women raise a very small percentage of the overall capital. And I remember 20 years ago, venture, and it's starting to date me, right? Uh, That uh, investors were afraid that women would get pregnant and wouldn't be able to focus on their business. And now that's not even a thought. Nobody. But it took like 20 years to get to that particular point. And now there are women who have some scalable models, but the men might not be really understanding of the model that they've chosen, the type of business. And so therefore they don't invest so all that is still taking time, but we are still getting going forward. So that's a good thing. Uh, you write a lot. And we talked about this earlier about conquering your fears from jumping out of planes and climbing mountains. And, and, and you climbed uh, Mount Everest, am I uh, correct?
1: Denali, which is also known as Mount McKinley in Alaska. It's the, yeah, the tallest mountain in North America.
0: Right, right. And and what type of mindset did you develop that allowed you to overcome your fears? And was this something you were taught or figured out on your own? Because you seem to have a very progressive dad that was very supportive of you. Uh, So how did that come about in your own personality?
1: Yeah, I do think a lot of it is upbringing. I I grew up in Alaska, and I I like to tell the story for those who aren't familiar that there are bumper stickers in Alaska that say, uh, Alaska, where men are men and women win the Iditarod. And if you know <laughs> about the I Did rod, it's a thousand mile yeah. dog sled lace. And it has been won by women more than once. So I think uh, that growing up in an environment where uh, that, that example was there, but also, you know, it's a tough environment in Alaska. And so you have to be able to pull your own weight and you've got to be able to take care of yourself. And I think that was a great way to grow up. I, I tell a story in my first book, North of Hope, which is a, a memoir, a lot more personal book um, about <laughs> about playing on the soccer field. And, and I remember there was one young lady and I think we were only nine or 10 years old. And there was a young lady that would charge to the forward on the other team, charge down the center of the field and we would part like the Red Sea. And I was in defense on the other side. And I remember once my dad, just very gently, I mean, it wasn't unkind, but at the end of a game said, why don't you run back at her? And I looked at him like he was crazy. And then the next game we were playing, it was a rainy day. There's a big puddle in front of the goal and she comes charging down the field. And I went charging back at her and we collided in the middle of the field. All of the soccer parents were silent. And if any of you have been, or have known, yeah. parents, you know, that never happens. And you know, she never charged my side of the field again. <laughs> and I like to come back to that formative example that was a gentle nudge from my father. And I had plenty of not so gentle nudges growing up as well. But I do think that that growing up in that environment was really helpful. Uh, and I've always liked adventure for sure. I think probably early on, I was motivated more by the adventure.
0: Do you think that helped build your confidence?
1: There's no question. Absolutely. And you know, every time... I started to skydive after I went through the Army's airborne school, and I thought I was going to die every time I jumped out of that airplane at airborne school, which is a static line jump. You jump very low to the ground because that's the kind of combat sort of a thing that is expected, although it hasn't been used in some time. And uh, I remember... I would look at the chaplain who was right across from me in the plane right before we jumped. And I would be, I would say the Lord's prayer. I'd be staring at him and just thinking, okay, all right, I got to do this thing. And then there's five jumps you jump. And then I decided I wanted to keep pushing myself that way. And so I started to skydive. It's a totally different environment. But I still kept those same. And this is actually one of the things that you do when you're fearful. You come up with those things that you do again and again. Every time I jumped out of an airplane and I went up through my advanced skydiving license, I would say the Lord's Prayer. I would pray for everybody I knew. And then I would jump. And uh, And it was. It was about facing those fears and pushing through them again and again and again. And that's that was training myself really in a way, although I wouldn't have thought of it that way at the time.
0: Oh, that can't be a good sign when you see uh, a priest Sitting across from you, a, a chaplain sitting across from you thinking, oh my God, why did they put a cha- I've jumped out of an airplane before. There was no chaplain there. Well,
1: that was the uh, army. The, army's, uh, the army does that, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
0: So facing resistance, especially if you don't have support, is very taxing and draining mentally and even physically. What yes. is your advice to getting energy and motivation for keeping going?
1: I think that's a incredibly important question right now. So I'm so glad you asked that Mark. And it's one thing that I address in part in in the grit factor, but not in whole. And so I'll start out with, uh, as you said, by yourself, facing it by yourself is taxing. The reality is none of us can do what we do alone, right? We're we're social creatures. Uh, We need a team and you've got to have a team. And I think that uh, thinking strategically about that is really helpful, uh, especially for a young leader who's just getting into something. But really, anytime you make a change or a transition or take on a new role and being thoughtful about who is on that team, uh, where is your, your social support, your personal support, the people that are your anchors, who are the colleagues, one or two colleagues that you can really trust? Is there a mentor or a sponsor that you can rely on or can you go out and do the work to find that person? And in the meantime, who can you mentor or sponsor along the way? Because the studies are actually pretty clear that when you do the work of mentorship for someone else, that also helps you as well. So, so forming your team and understanding, you, you're you not intended to do this alone. And it does feel lonely. Every leader knows that leadership is a lonely, lonely sport, right? It's, it always is. But you've got to find that team and, and find ways to, to, to lean on that team in the times that you need it the most. So that's number one. Number two is the other way that I think that we have to all pay attention to, especially those of us who are in leadership positions or those of us who are really execution oriented. Like I tend to be very operationally focused. I like to get things done. I'm very uncomfortable when I know that there's things that are hanging out there and I will work way too long and way too hard. And I'll bet you most people on this call can can identify with that. Especially in this past year, I think one of the things we've learned is we've gone online. Many of us are working longer hours and working harder, uh, despite the fact that we have eliminated commutes uh, because we're at home or or somewhere else. And so I think we have to find ways to to be healthy about setting boundaries on our work, ensuring that we are, are promoting balance in our own lives, because that's really the only way that you can manage for the long haul. I like to say grit is critical to your success, but it is not a sustainable operating mode. It's something you need to have, it's something you need to build, it's something you need to integrate into your character, but you can't operate that way 100% of the time. And that's where we've got to really work on putting our own oxygen mask on first so we can take care of our families and take care of our teams and our organizations.
0: Uh, and that's a, great, uh, that's a great thing to mention about putting your oxygen mask on first, great example. What's your, one of the questions uh, from the audience And the last question was from also the audience, so I can't take credit for being so brilliant. Uh, what is your most vivid memory from your military experience and your proudest moment?
1: Oh, wow. Proudest and most vivid. Interesting. I would say they're definitely going to be different. Um, so the most vivid is a story that I tell in some keynotes um, relative to listening Uh, So I'll I'll just leave that at that. I won't necessarily make that connection. But when I was flying in Bosnia, it was my second platoon. It was 1997. We were part of the stabilization force that supported the uh, Dayton Peace Accords as part of NATO. And our job was to fly armed aerial reconnaissance. Now, as Apache helicopters, again, we have sight systems that can see in day and night in adverse conditions. So we flew at night. That's one of our core competencies and uh, one of the, the things that we did well. And so we always flew at night and we flew in teams of two and our job was to do armed aerial reconnaissance of the Serbian heavy weapon storage sites and so we would fly out to that position come to a, a high hover because our our hard deck or our minimum altitude was 300 feet which is very high for a helicopter to fly because we're relatively slow so any kind of anti-aircraft or surface-to-air missiles uh, can target us very easily at 300 feet. We, we really didn't care for that, but it was part, that was the rule of engagement as we came into the country. Now, when we came into the country of Bosnia, I, those of you who have visited or, or know it, know it's a very beautiful country, but it was absolutely ravaged by the war. And so we would fly over homes and villages that had been utterly and completely destroyed to the last building with a tank round. Even a house on top of a mountain would have a tank round through it. So there was definitely a sense of urgency, a sense of, of danger, a sense of of fear. And I remember flying out on one of our very first missions, taking off from Tuzla West, so a little tent camp just to the west of the town of Tuzla. And we took off and we flew up to the north as part of multinational division north. My job in the mission profile was to do navigation, communications and weapons systems. So I was talking to all of the ground units, all of the NATO ground units that were, uh, that were below us as we passed over them. And I remember we started to come to this high out of ground effect hover at 300 feet to do this reconnaissance of this heavy weapons storage site. It was dark, of course, it's nighttime. Our infrared picture was beautiful, but all of a sudden in that high hover, the sound in our helmets changed. And it was a sound that I had only ever heard in the simulator. We were being tracked by one of the most lethal anti-aircraft systems in the world. Now, my backseater and I both puckered just a bit. (laughs) We knew it wasn't allowed. It was certainly violating the rules of engagement, whichever country's system it was that was doing that tracking. I remember my backseater, the person flying behind me in this tandem configuration, said, what do you want me to do, LT? Do you want me to break the hard deck? I said, hold tight. And I called up to the controlling agency and that controlling agency controls all aviation operations and sector. I said, this is Blue Max 56, this is our position. We're at feet and we're being tracked by the most lethal anti-aircraft system in the world. And as we waited for their reply, the sound in my helmet changed again. And now we have been acquired by that same system. If they fired, we would be dead. At the same time, the controlling agency came back on the radio and said, if you're nervous, return to station, but don't break the hard deck. Nervous? Yeah, we were nervous, but we had to make a decision in that moment. And that decision was based on hours of briefings. It was based on situational awareness. It was based on knowing that breaking the hard deck would break that rule of engagement and that we hadn't completed the mission. And so the choice in that moment was to reach over to that radar tracking device and the volume. So that's probably the most um, the the most terrified that I've ever been in the cockpit for sure. Oh, There's other um, examples that are probably somewhat similar, but that certainly uh, would be one of one of the most interesting ones to share.
0: What's a hard deck?
1: A hard deck is your minimum altitude, and we normally don't fly with that in a helicopter. The helicopters fly low. We fly nap of the earth in the trees, right? I mean we're we're going around hillsides. We're following rivers because we go slowly relative to a jet. And so we want to be really, really low. And that's typically how we would fly in mission profile. So to be at 300 feet, if you had someone over your house at 300 feet in a helicopter, you'd probably call the police. It would be be very low. But in a tactical environment, that's a really high altitude. So it was pretty uncomfortable, but it was a requirement in that phase of the operation.
0: I I didn't know this, but one of the folks had written in, did you run for the U.S. Senate?
1: I did not. No, there's some... no there are there are a few other women army veterans and helicopter pilots or pilots who who did run
0: okay so they must have confused you with someone else um what advice does do you give women in business who want to break into the c-suite or onto boards
1: yeah that's an important question and one that i'm really grateful is being addressed uh, by a lot of different parts of the business community right now men and women because that is something that all of us have to work together on right I think some of the, the most important uh, pieces of advice are number one, to take risks and stretch assignments. Stretch assignments, uh, take on the jobs that no one else wants to do where you can get something done and really be able to then stand up for yourself and show the results of that work. But probably most importantly, I think it is finding those mentors and those sponsors. And uh, and you know I think it's an interesting thing as I was looking at mentorship for the Grit Factor in particular, we really got deeper into it. And I think there's this perception that mentors for women should always be women. And actually what came out of the Grit Factor and multiple other examples was in many cases, actually the best mentor for a woman is probably a man because men are still primarily in those positions of power. And for somebody to be able to advise you as a a senior woman on how to negotiate moving onto a board, it's helpful to have the feedback and the input and the guidance of somebody who's there. And so I think that's that's important to say, be, be to cast a wide net in how you look for a mentor, but also look for a mentor that's not just the same or a different gender, but somebody that you really connect to uh, because mentorship is a reciprocal relationship, but it's something where, hey, you wanna have something in common. You wanna enjoy that person. And that's a relationship that you're developing and that you're tending just like another relationship in another sort of a way. But then the other part is the sponsorship, which is different than mentorship. And that's someone who will really stand up for you and advocate for you. And that might be somebody that you find through a mentor. That might also be someone that you find through taking on that, that risky assignment, that stretch assignment where you really are able to show what, what you can really do and how you can contribute. So I think all of those are really important. Networking, of course, generally is always important. But those are, would be three areas that I would really focus on when you're, when you're making that, um, that leap
0: has the me too movement which has been good and i guess in some place in some ways uh hurt women in the sense of men being very hesitant about wanting to be mentors. What well, yes. has that affected m- men's uh wanting to be mentors and i think especially in the military because it seems like the military has a lot of problems with gender issues.
1: Yeah, i i do think it is a challenge and i think it's um It's a tough one. I think the reality is if you are a leader, you should be developing all of your people and you've got to find the right way to do that. So I I talked uh, actually to a couple of of military leaders on a podcast a little while ago and they were saying, well, you know, what what if I can't meet with them behind closed doors? And I said, well, there's 10 other places that you can meet with them. You can walk on the flight line. You can and you know in the corporate space you can walk on the corporate campus, go for a walk, sit behind a glass door, go to a public uh, public dining hall, sort of a place, and and sit down and have your meeting. So if you're uncomfortable being behind closed doors because of what's been happening, and maybe your organizations had a particularly challenging time, then really make sure to find other ways to do it. I think it's it's really incumbent on the leaders who may happen to be men to find a way to mentor all of the people that uh, that that work for them or that are working in, in conjunction with them. So be creative, I guess, is really the answer to that. And know that it is your job as a leader to find a way to do that. And I'm, I, it is really unfortunate that uh, that there is a reaction in any way against that. I think the reality is most people are good people. <laughs> and if you do things well and you do things and you're upfront and you're honest and you're, you're, uh, you take the high road, I think you're, you're really not going to have any problems.
0: How do you deal with dismissive behavior by individuals? And also, have you found men to be more dismissive toward you or of your achievements, or is it more of a rank ranks issue?
1: I think it's a both and. And it, you know what? It's challenging. I think there are some times when you just have to push through. I, one of the biggest and, and hardest lessons to learn as a young person, especially, is to put blinders on for the naysayers. There are some people you are never going to convince. And putting energy towards trying to convince them is is not a productive use of your time and your energy. So really looking for those places and those people who do support you where you can contribute and excel and And not not dismissing yourself, but at least putting blinders on and not paying too much attention to those who are dismissive is pretty important. And I would also say that has to do with choosing the right environment to work. You know, I talked to Marsh Carter, who has a stellar military and corporate career and has been a mentor to many, many, many people in his, his senior years. He's now at MIT Sloan. And I remember he talked about really increasing the number of women at State Street Bank when he was there. And he was there for a number of years. I think he brought it up to almost 50%. And he had to take, put, put some policies in place that that were controversial. And I asked them, you know, what if what if you're working somewhere where someone's not doing that? They're not supporting that. They're not being creative in solutions. And they said, well, sometimes you've got to find another place where the environment is more conducive to your success. And so I think that is sometimes the answer, but really being heads down on your work and your productivity and trying really hard to not pay attention to that uh, dismissiveness is is pretty important. I think relative to whether it's rank or whether it's gender related, I think, again, that really depends on the person. But there certainly is still the issue of gender. There's no question about it.
0: Um, Could you please talk about the Army leadership model, be, know, and do, and how business leaders can apply it to themselves and managing people?
1: Yeah, and you know what, something that came up actually that I I loved is the way, and this is probably not a coincidence because I was interviewing leaders who happened to be women who happened to be military, right? And if you think about how the GRIT Institute triad breaks out, commit, learn and launch, it really in many ways corresponds to this be and know and do. And I think that's a, it's I'm, whoever asked that question, I'm, I'm assuming probably has some experience in it. it it's a great model. And and I'm going to come back to my commit, learn and launch, because that's where I've spent most of my last five years developing here, but it does correspond directly. And that is that before you can lead others, you have to lead yourself, right? That's being that's that, and it's truly internalizing also it's both, leading yourself and internalizing the values of that organization. And I think that's where you have to make choices of working places that uh, not only don't contradict, but actually are supported by and support your own personal values. So it's not just personal, it's also organizational. Certainly in the military, I would think that the focus is, uh, and certainly always has been organizational, but I would suggest you first have to do your personal work of owning your own story of owning your own core values, owning your core purpose, drilling down to and connecting to that core purpose. And then you connect that to the values of the organization. And the Army does that through basic training. As everybody knows, you break down the individual and you build them back up within the context of the organization. I really think that having those individual values and perspectives is just as important as you make that connection to the organization. So that's the B. That's the commit phase of the grit factor. That's the B phase of the Army's leadership model. No is really being exceptional in the work that you're doing. So that is for, and this came out in many conversations as well for leaders, is that you really have to do the work to build up your skills early on. Take on every educational opportunity, take on every risk, every assignment you can have, every opportunity you have to learn and to grow and to excel uh, or to fail and get up and learn, right? And that's the the no part, is being very, very good at what it is that you do. I also think it's about knowing your people as well, right? It's knowing your people, Uh, So that you can take care of your people. And one of the things the military does, I think, potentially better than almost anyone else when they do it well, is that we understand that we say mission first, people always. You take care of your people and they take care of the mission. And I like to tell a story of when my first battalion commander, who was an exceptional leader, and when he pinned on my silver bars of the first lieutenant, and any of you with military experience knows that's, that's still pretty early on. It's sort of like the advanced driver's permit, right? And when he pinned on those bars, he said, the only good use of any increased power you will ever have is the increased responsibility to take care of your people. You take care of your people, they take care of the mission. So knowing is about knowing your job, knowing the greater uh, environment that you're working in, knowing your people. And then do is the execution, right? That's execute, that's go mode. That's being able to, to execute on that mission with that foundation of knowing yourself, knowing the organization, being fully invested in the values that you've identified for yourself, but also those of the organization. Knowing your job, and then you go out and you execute. So I think it's an outstanding model for corporate leaders. And that's where I hope you'll see the alignment with the grip factor as well. And the grip triad with commit, learn and launch. It's absolutely the same thing. And I am—I uh, I was just very tickled to see how that aligned as, as I started to put the book together.
0: So uh, there's a question here regarding your proudest moment. I guess we forgot to hit about what your proudest moment is. And also if you were in front of high school or middle school boys and girls, what would your message be?
1: Mm, wow. Okay. Those are, those are great questions. Um, proudest moment. You know, if I were to give a proudest moment, I was very, I guess I was, I was proud to be one of the first women to fly the Apache. Absolutely. I was proud to graduate from training. I was honor grad at flight school. I was proud to be feeling like I was making a difference. And I started to understand later in that process that that was really setting the stage for others to follow. And that's a really important thing I think for all of us to do is to make the road easier for others. Right? That's, that's part of my purpose. That's part of, I hope all of your purposes as well. But my proudest moments really were about taking care of people. And, and I will say similarly, my um, moments of greatest failure or shame was when I didn't do that adequately. And so I'm gonna give you an example. I actually haven't given this very often, uh, but I was in Korea. And I was company commander of Alpha 1-2 Aviation. We supported the 2nd Brigade Combat Team up close to the demilitarized zone. And I had a young soldier, and that young soldier's grandmother died uh, back in the States. Now, the Army regulations didn't support giving that soldier time off and allowing him to travel back for his grandmother's funeral. If it was a parent or an immediate family member, it would have been appropriate. But the, the thing was this this young soldier's family was, was pretty dysfunctional and he was really mostly raised by his grandmother. And I remember doing the work to be able to make sure we could get him down to Seoul, get him on an airplane, get him back to his family and then bring him back. And I had to coordinate, you know, the train. It was not something that was supported at all because again, the regulations didn't support it. And I remember that being one of my proudest moments because truly, leadership is about people and it, it, if it isn't in your heart, it's not about leading, right? And that was an opportunity to take care of someone in a very meaningful way that then allowed him to perform his duties much better when he returned. So I am I am very proud of that. I can give you other examples where that happened to me, even actually at Microsoft and where I had the chance to do that for others at other points. Those would be my proudest moments our soldier moments. Um, not mission moments and I think that's an important thing to to remember and to take away that at the end of the day that's what matters most
0: one of our,
1: actually one of the messages I would share with high school boys and girls by the way is that that is one of the that is what matters most but at the same time uh, one of the things that I think is an important message that comes out from these senior leaders and I, I love bringing this up and I can give you multiple examples of stories of this as well uh, but I'll just answer the question since we're short on time. Never be afraid to ask for what you want. You have to earn it and you have to ask for it. And I think that's a really important lesson for young people to, to take away right away. You've got to ask for what you want. Never assume anybody knows what it is that you want. Do the work and then ask for it. And that's hard sometimes, especially for a, a young leader or a person in a new position, even at a new company, even later on in their career. But you've got to ask for what you want and do the You're work upfront. Right.
0: front. People always are afraid these are going to turn me down or I I don't want to embarrass myself. Yes. I, I think the people who succeed just don't worry about that. And in any, uh, for anything that they do, whether it's asking somebody out on a date, taking on a new business, going for graduate school, whatever it is, discuss how you've balanced being a mother and raising two boys.
1: (laughs) I'm not entirely sure there's any such thing as balance uh, myself anymore. And certainly this last year, I, the two boys are at home and, um, uh, it's it's certainly very tricky, but I think the most important part of that equation, and I'm very, very fortunate, is that I'm married to a wonderful man, and uh, he understands that we both work, and we're both parents, and so we share responsibilities, I think, really well, and I think it would be much more difficult to do if I didn't have a partner who was as fully invested in our family and each other as, as we do, so I'm very, very fortunate in that, and I will say it's it, it is something that we work on literally every day which probably is a great point to bring up as well. Just like we talked about the hovering early on. And this is the same thing about the um, same thing I think about sharing this with kids is it's about consistency, right? And the things that we get good at and the things that are important, we have to work on every day. And family is a love is a huge value of mine. That's a big, big deal for our family is that we focus on building up our family. So we focus on that every day. That means mom's got to work. That means dad's got to work. That's important to me. That's important to him. And it means that the kids need to work. The second part of that is it takes a village. I think other countries do this much better than the U.S. typically. But in this time of COVID, both of the grandmothers have been helping to teach the kids online. So they both log on to FaceTime with their grandmas and go through their math assignments or go through their reading assignments. And I'm so incredibly grateful for our family really stepping up to help us through this time.
0: Uh, Do you tell kids to take hard STEM courses like Trig Factor?
1: That's really important. I think it is equally as important to have liberal arts, uh, language arts, and the soft skills. So I would say that I think they're equally important. I think there's been a lot of focus on STEM, which is really great, especially for young women who are sometimes discouraged from that in, in some way or another, culturally or socially. So that's an important area of focus. I think the part of our our educational system that needs more focus right now, and I I think our world events have shown this, is that we need more work in the humanities as well. We've got to go back, and this is probably not what you expected a helicopter pilot to say, but I was an English major. Go back and you need to read the classics and be in the arts as well, because we are, are human beings, right? And you don't, work like a robot. So yes, STEAM. Thank you, Scott. That's a, great, that's a great point. Not STEM, but STEAM. The arts have got to be part of it. But absolutely, challenge yourself, take the hard courses, and do not neglect the humanities, because that's what makes us human.
0: Was your husband also in the military?
1: He wasn't. We met at business school at Tuck.
0: Okay. All right, good.
1: His father He's is a at- Marine, however, so we have, uh, we have that in common.
0: <laughs> oh, he was a Marine?
1: A Marine, and uh, you don't ever say it was a Marine. He is a Marine. He's 93 years old now. He was in the Korean War and at the end of World War II, and uh, I made that mistake one time.
0: <laughs> he's, ready to, he's ready to suit up now if needed.
1: He is a Marine. That's right.
0: <laughs> you spoke about skydiving, and uh, someone wrote here, one of my four-way teammates and I are both listening. I'm curious as to how you proved yourself and found mentors in the sport. How did in the you m- find sport
1: mentors? You know, I found skydiving pretty egalitarian, to be honest, um, in my limited experience. And I did go up through my advanced license, but, you know, I, I didn't do it for years and years. I probably skydived for about five years and I still have my parachute, but it's been long enough. I'm not entirely sure it would, it would open anymore. Uh, yeah. So I, I found the drop zone where I was training, which was just north in North Carolina, north of Duke University, to be quite egalitarian. So people were very, very supportive. And that, that was never an issue in skydiving for me at all. If it is for others, it wasn't my experience. So I really enjoyed it.
0: Any advice you have for generating a really great team environment, either in a sport or in a professional setting? And also, do you still jump?
1: I do not still jump. Uh, You know, jumping, uh, and I I would enjoy it for sure, but jumping and flying, I get asked often if I still fly, are things that I think you have to do all the time to be proficient. And if you can't do them all the time, you shouldn't do them at all. So do I miss it? Yes, it was a lot of fun. Um, I'm also having a lot of fun with my family now and getting outside in different ways. So I do not do that anymore because I can't do it all the time in order to stay proficient. So, uh, but in terms of building a team environment, it's about taking care of your people. It's about connecting your people. It's about having fun with your people, right? And I think, uh, there, and I'd be happy to work with your team by the way to do that, because I think it's, it's absolutely a passion of mine. But if you're checking in with your people, if you're finding ways to, to hold people up and to celebrate your successes, I think that's those are some, some kind of low-hanging fruit to get started for sure. But ensuring that you have a culture that celebrates each other, that holds each other up, that supports each other is really important. And in this time of COVID especially, and I know things, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Some people are getting some vaccines, but we're still not sure what's going to happen in the long run. One of the things I tell people is when you don't have that long-term horizon, it's very disorienting for a lot of us then that's when you've got to celebrate those short-term successes. So every week, find something to celebrate, do something funny on your Zoom meeting. We have a, on a board that I'm, I, I chair, we have a rubber chicken that we use to make everybody laugh. <laughs> so whatever it is that kind of brings some levity into it and also celebrates the wins regularly is a really important thing to do right now and, and for any kind of a team culture.
0: Um, Please talk about the two truths and the importance of your inner circle and how you can develop that within a company one might start.
1: Yeah, so your inner circle, uh, this goes back to the idea of developing your team, understanding that you can't do this by yourself. Even if you are the only person that is at your company for a while, even if you have a very small team and and you're making all the decisions, uh, you still have to have that team. And that team doesn't have to be in your company at all, right? Right. there's somebody, whether it's your partner or your spouse that is going to be, I hope, or a a very good friend that can be a solid emotional kind of friend support. That's really important to find that and to, to develop and spend time with these, right? A lot of us who are working in a really focused way can have a tendency to neglect those relationships and those need the same sort of a focus as anything else. So having that emotional support, but also somebody that can understand the business challenges that you have and that you can go to, to bounce ideas off of, or to get some say, Hey, I'm just, I don't know what to do with this, or I'm just exhausted, or you haven't any any idea how I might address this really spending time thinking about how to develop. That is a really important part to being able to sustain that success, especially if you're the one leading because it is a lonely, lonely place to be.
0: How do you determine who should be in your inner circle?
1: Well, I think that's really experience of, of being trustworthy, right? Somebody that has proven themselves to be trustworthy to you. And sometimes you might be taking a risk if you don't feel like uh, there's many of those around. That might be a good signal that you want to spend some time developing relationships. And uh, and you might even ask somebody, you might even say, hey, I'm I'm looking, I really need some help in this area. Somebody that you know well, but not as well as you'd like to. And I'd really like to to bounce ideas off you um, regularly. Would you be willing to you know meet on Fridays and grab lunch and talk through things? Or, but really, I think if there's if you don't have an idea of who those people are, it's a great signal that you might want to spend some more time developing some relationships. But it is really the foundation uh, of trust that should help to inform that for you.
0: Uh, talk about the concept of growth through failure and how a leader's. Uh, can reassure employees that failure isn't a career killer?
1: This is a critical question. So whoever asked that, thank you very, very much. And it is about developing that culture as well, right? Um, growth through failure is its how we grow. We grow primarily through stretching ourselves and through falling and getting back up one more time than we fall. And I like to say that that same metaphor on takeoff with fear and with failure That's just another form of resistance, right? And what do you do on takeoff with resistance? You turn towards it. You fly directly through it. The more important question, you'll find lots and lots in your literature, I think, and and in the grip factor on people that have failed and found ways to get up and get up stronger. Part of that's the growth mindset, knowing that when we fail and get back up, when we do hard things, we get better at doing hard things. That's scientifically Solid information and something for us to all to teach to our teams and to internalize ourselves. But as a leader, here's what I would say. As a leader, share the times that you fail. Be vulnerable enough to share the times that you fail, perhaps even with your organization or bring up stories of, hey, there's this time that I did this and it just didn't work out. And this is what I learned from it. And this is how I've moved forward through it. And then look at the ways that you react to the instances of failure in your organization. So I think a leader has an incredible opportunity to shape the culture. But for a lot of leaders, we're not particularly failure tolerant ourselves. And that's where you've got to do your own internal work and then be willing to share that with your team if you're really, truly interested and invested in developing that culture that allows people to learn from failure. And that's a very important thing to do. So thank you for that question.
0: This might end up being the last question we're able to ask you. Shanna comes... uh through as a charismatic and extroverted leader. And in the USA culture, I think typically leaders come through this way. I'm curious whether she came across leaders that are introverts as opposed to shy people. And if, and if so, if she could elaborate on their leadership style.
1: That is another wonderful question. Um, I will say, actually, I am an introvert. Interestingly, I think the way that we define that is, oh yeah, Glenn is shaking his head. He's the only one I can see. Um, There is a bit of acting that is a part of leadership, right? It's part of parenting. It's part of being a teacher. There's a bit of a a role that you put on. Um, I get my energy from sitting in a chair and reading a book or watercolor painting by myself. I'm just so that makes me an introvert officially. I do love people. I love people and I love the chance to, to be with people. So, but I and I will say that I have had to develop that more and more. And I started to develop that. Certainly, the army is um, I would say more supportive of that kind of leadership for sure. But something that I'm really grateful for is that there is an increasing awareness that there's many different ways to lead. And the quiet leaders, I, I had two different battalion commanders as a as a lieutenant and as a captain, that I'll, I'll give you an example of. The first was the very outgoing, sort of extroverted uh, presenting leader, and he was amazing. And I really, really appreciated him. I learned from him a lot. The second one was very quiet and he was very effective. And he set very firm boundaries on work, which was a great example for everybody that the first one did not do, by the way. But he would lead by making sure he would walk around. He would make sure that he was, all, he was present. He was with people but he wasn't in their faces he wasn't delivering commands or or requirements but he would just check in with people quietly and i know at his meetings he would always be quiet and then he but when he said something people would listen not just because he was the commander but because he was so quiet that if he said something it was important and both of them were leading attack helicopter battalions in the 18th Airborne Corps tip of the spear right army's contingency corps ready to deploy anywhere in the world And both of them were incredibly effective. But I would say that what made them most effective was their connection to people and being authentic to who they were. And at the end of the day, sustainable leadership is only sustainable if you lead in a way that's authentic to who you are. So embrace whichever way that is. There will be circumstances that require you to step up and be extroverted. If I was here in a shrinking violet on your show today, it probably um, wouldn't be as good a conversation, right? But I can also go now and, and recharge with a book. So so honor that part of yourself. Know that there's times to be, to, to be one way or the other, and, uh, and you can be effective in, in either characteristic.
0: Shannon, you were awesome. I could tell by all the questions that we got. We so appreciate you spending the time with us today. We hope your book's a great success, The Grit Factor, if you haven't read this book, it's an absolute must-have read book, uh, read book. and uh, especially since we're locked up in our minimum-security prison in our life right now, it's a good time to get a book like this and uh, really enjoy it and apply it to what you're doing every day. So we wish you the best. We hope you come out with another book, and uh, I guess apparently there's a sign here that you should be running for the Senate, right? So you know. <laughs>
1: There's, a, there's enough other people with that as their passion. That is not my passion, but I, I applaud those who are willing to take that on. So,
0: <laughs> Well, I look forward to keeping in touch. Have a great rest of your weekend. Everybody stay safe. I hope to see you all uh, next Friday when we have uh, Michael Platt, who writes about the mind uh, from Wharton, talk next Friday. So have a great weekend.
1: Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you again.